All right. Welcome back to my my podcast, which is really just an excuse for me to have conversations with interesting people I admire, uh, Natural Awakening. And today the guest is Chelsea Fasano, a student at Columbia University, practitioner of Tantra. And maybe I'll turn it over to Chelsea, just say a few words about uh, about yourself, who you are, what you do. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea. Uh who I am and what I do. I currently study neuroscience and psychology at Columbia and attempt to conduct interesting research on meditation and yogic sexual practices and study religion and neuroscience uh, and also attempt to continue to do my own practice in the process of that, which is uh, challenging at times. And... Um, I also work in sex education on the side. So I have kind of this trifecta of areas that I study, which is human sexuality, spirituality, and neuroscience. And I'm very interested in the middle of uh, the intersection between those three things and how uh, that works in a human life. All right. Great intro. Um, Maybe we could just start off. Uh, with a little bit of your bio background, why why would why would you be interested in these sorts of things? Uh, you know, if as much as you're willing to share, you know, where were you born? Uh, if you want to share some details about your early life, what what brought you to practice, and then further on from that, uh, why why are you studying these things now? Well, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, so. I think I was in a very unique position to be part of a very specific subculture that meditation and spirituality was just a part of the dialogue. Um, so, you know, my parents had books floating around by Eckhart Tolle when I was a kid and, um, it's just, it's sort of saturated over there, uh, with that sort of thinking and orientation and, uh, Spirit Rock, which was founded by Jack Cornfield is in Marin, which is, you know, an hour's drive away. And I think that's part of why that's the case is that it's sort of, uh, epicenter of some of the first transmissions from Asia kind of landed nearby me. <laughs> so, I really think that's a big part of why I ended up getting involved in it. Um, and I, I also think there's, you know, some things that are just somewhat mysterious to me about why <laughs> I ended up <laughs> becoming so involved. Um, my very first uh, experience where I went to a day-long meditation retreat at Spirit Rock, uh, I just sort of happened to have a really profound experience that altered my sense of myself in the world substantially enough that I was hooked. And I actually think a lot about why and how that occurs for some people and not others in the, in terms of mindfulness and meditation as interventions and how that works or doesn't work and who gets involved and who doesn't, you know, are there neurological reasons why some people are more drawn to this kind of thing or their personality traits or, you know, what causes that sort of initial experience to occur whereby someone decides that this is something I should really pursue. So I I think, you know, that's sort of vague, but why and how I got involved, I think the simple answer is um, I just started young and, you know, okay, so a lot of money goes into, you know, boy bands because they're really appealing to teenage girls, right? There's like that teenage girl fervor where it's like, there's almost no other, you know, kind of human that can like have that intensity of like devotion and love and like ecstasy and just, you know, intense emotion about something that's like 
So I was a teenage girl that happened to have that energy and just happened to devote it to this thing that I found that I liked and did it for a number of years. And then kind of the rest is history, I would say. Um, and the reason why I'm studying it now Well, I suppose it's just a life passion of mine, and also, I I somehow think it might help people in a way that maybe other things can't. So, you know, a lot of what's occurring these days that I see around me is it seems that there's a increasing level of disconnection in the general population. And a lot of people I know who are in clinical practice and so on uh, agree with me. They say that people seem to be suffering more and more. And I think I'm acutely aware of the way that technology and the modern life that we're living is really rapidly escalating in a direction that tends to cause a lot of disconnection between humans and themselves and humans and each other. And I tend to think that the mechanics of connection are something that really occur in the body and as a result of some kind of embodied practice and that other clinical modalities like therapy that involve a lot of talking and conceptualization can really only take people so far in repairing this rift that I see is sort of perpetually widening each year uh, and I feel, I think every single day I feel the pain of that in humans. And somehow I got this idea in my head that contemplative practices and specifically those that are designed to facilitate intimacy with self and other might be the medicine that we need right now at this moment. And that if I could help people in that way, you know, it might ease my own suffering about seeing so much disconnection and also other people's. And so that motivates me deeply in ways that are extremely profound for me and motivate a lot of, um, you know, this insane stuff I do about obsessing over all of this, you know, weird academic research and um, things of that nature. So I, I don't know. Is that a good answer? Why, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What um, there are a lot of themes in, in what you have already said, uh, but I, I suppose picking up on on the central one, the this like rift, this disconnection between self and world, self and other, and then tying that back to your own personal story uh, of that that first experience you had of an alteration in the sense of yourself and the world, and I'm wondering if maybe you could explicitly tie those two together, uh. Maybe by if if you're comfortable sharing more detail about that experience and why it was so meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I I'm I'm definitely comfortable sharing. It was um, it was I was around sixteen or seventeen. I can never really remember the exact year, but I was in high school, and I was doing a walking meditation. Uh, on the hills of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And it's a beautiful landscape. And, you know, the whole rest of the day-long retreat, I just remember thinking, like, to be frank, I was like, this makes no fucking sense. Like, how am I supposed to think about not thinking? Like, my mind was just caught in this, like, I'm trying to use my mind to get around my mind, like, thinking to not think. Like, it just felt so, like, like there was no way out of this tangle. Like, it felt contradictory. It just couldn't. I couldn't figure out what the hell they were trying to tell me. And I just kind of was going around in circles with that, really getting pretty much nowhere, I would say, the whole day. And then I was walking on the hills, and I, I really can't tell you exactly what happened, because I don't think it was anything I really did. Uh, it feels like one of those kind of beginner's luck moments. Mm -hmm. But I just remember suddenly... I just had this moment of quiet and the moment of quiet is not what really impacted me. But I remember because I was, I had my eyes open at that moment and I was looking out at the hills and, uh, 
Wow, I still get emotional talking about this. I felt as though I had never, I, I suddenly saw the hills in a way I had never seen anything. And in that moment, I felt like I had never actually seen the world before that moment, like that I had never really, that's the only way I can say it, that I had never seen anything truly. And it was so beautiful. I mean, it was just unbearably beautiful. Just the way everything looked. Um, and you know, I mean, people talk about this a lot and I think it's sort of a trope at this point almost, but I was acutely aware that there had been a sort of veil over my eyes for every single second I had been alive before that moment. And when it was slightly lifted in that very first you know, small moment of uh, practice that uh, happened to sort of descend on me. I, uh, yeah, I was just deeply, deeply moved by just the absolute beauty of, of just what was in front of my eyes. Um, so how does that relate to intimacy? Uh, I think for me, that is intimacy. And I think that is what happens when we're intimate with ourselves and we see our own uh, bodily sensations and even our thoughts and our uh, emotions uh, with more clarity. And I think for me, that's what true intimacy with another is, is to be able to see them with as much... Uh, trying to say the right word right now, see them with as much vividness, uh, and, and nuance as, as possible to, to really see them exquisitely. That I think is what real intimacy is. And, um, seeing ourselves in the world and the other as a continual process of becoming. And so I suppose that's why I often think of real intimacy as being kind of divorced from <clears throat> you know, a form of psychoanalysis, which I, I think is very useful, by the way, and, and important to, to go through the mind and really comb through it and understand it. But to me, real intimacy is direct and, and, and immediate, very immediate. And so that is what really interests me is how to bring that into therapy, how to bring that into culture at large, how to bring that into, you know, anything I can basically. Um, because I have this crazy belief that if everyone could have that or even have a moment of that, if we could give every single person on earth some moment exactly of, of a variety of what I experienced at that age, that, um, I just somehow believe that would change everything. And I think that sounds completely nuts and totally idealistic. And yet, you know, I still can't let go <laughs> of the idea. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, doesn't sound so, so nuts and idealistic to me. But, uh, then again, I, I'm, I'm also someone who has this, you know, overriding obsession that's completely taken over his life. So yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> I, I, I get it. Um, there's something uh, interesting. I kind of latched on to one of the words you used, uh, immediate, as in literally not mediated in perception. Uh, mm -hmm. Like there's no intermediary. There's mm -hmm. no no separation. And it's, it sounds like the experience you had was just the, the vividness, the the beauty that was coming through. Uh, and it's at, at, at 16. That, that's so wonderful. And it sounds like it's had a good influence on the rest of your life. I'm, I'm curious, um, again, if you're willing to share what, you said you kind of pursued it with that kind of devotion, a characteristic of, of, of teenage girls. Um, what, uh, 
how how did that manifest? Did you did you find a teacher? Did you find a tradition? Did you immerse yourself in that way, or what did that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just started to do as much practice as I could at Spirit Rock, and then I found a bunch of other teachers, and it led me on this massive sort of quest, which altered the course of my life. Uh, and. You know, instead of going to whatever people do in high school, like keg stands, I guess, or, you know, secret parties in the park where you drink. I mean, I did go to some of those, but, you know, oftentimes I would go and meditate in my room instead, which there has to be some, or at least for me, there would have had to be some uh, kind of emotional allure to motivate one to choose something like that over... Uh, what's just going on, what was going on around me as a teenager, which certainly wasn't that. I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't a meditation club at high school. There wasn't, you know, I was profoundly bizarre at that age. I, I feel that the older I get, kind of the less weird I get. But at that age, I was a real weirdo. And, you know, I probably still am. Um, so I think it just, it had the pull on me necessary to overcome just simply being what was around me, which is what probably anyone would do without some kind of level of uh kind of intense pull towards not doing that and uh and I think you know also how to put this uh I, I think a lot about flavors of practice sort of you know and I think often that just like anything else we often develop a sort of flavor of our practice that stays with us throughout our life. Um, and I think for me, that sort of feeling of love and this sort of sensual nature of what I experienced and that being such a motivating force, that kind of feeling of devotion and love and awe really just became a thread that really formed a very strong current in my practice that I think is really has directed my practice and my life in ways that are kind of easy to explain and not so easy to explain that it's just been it's been a flavor that has has stayed with me that has been uh I would say solidified over practice, you know, that, uh, informs my academic thinking and my choice in teachers and my, uh, orientation in my practice. You know, we're all sitting there in the meditation hall or in an embodiment, a practice or in any other thing. And I, I just feel the more I practice, the more, uh, vast the terrain seems to me that, we're each having just such an individual experience. I think, I, I really think, I think, you know, this is something people talk about in therapy. So it's like, okay, all the patients have their own journey. And as a therapist, your role is to facilitate people uncovering their journey for themselves about their psyche and their inquiry into life in the moment. And how do they want to live? Right. You're, you're not supposed to come in with your preconceived ideas and psychoanalyze them to the point that they, uh, lose a sense of self, but rather to open a door for the vastness and sort of uniqueness of their experience. And, uh, I think about that a lot in terms of spiritual practice. You know, I think the same thing. I think it's easy to kind of slap our preconceived notions of practice and the ways we've scaffolded a sense of what practice is onto others, but Really, I tend to think that everyone's journey is as unique spiritually as it is psychologically, because obviously they're intertwined. <laughs> and so the way that moment impacted me, I would say, is it just it became a string in the fabric of my unique journey up until now that uh, continues to move me and sort of has become a vector of uh, motivation a very strong vector of, of my personal life kind of direction and force and moment to moment. 
I'm, I'm reminded of the, the image or the, the phrase. Uh, I think it comes from, this happens all the time. These, these phrases come up and sometimes I don't remember where they, where they came from, but I'm pretty sure this one comes from Ikkyu, the uh, Japanese uh, Zen master. Don't remember what century. Doesn't matter. Uh, the, the red thread of, of sensuality, which for him was very linked with, with intimacy, with, you know, all kinds of intimacy, you know, uh, the intimacy of awakening, the intimacy of, of sex, love, romance. And it sounds like for you too, that's, that's kind of a, a unifying theme. So maybe yes, connecting that back to your current studies and, your your involvement with uh tantra and uh embodiment work maybe maybe i don't know that's a lot but maybe maybe you could just riff on that yeah i love that and i think it's i mean it it's very aligned with the way i think about sensuality so I, for me, and I think it's possible for others to experience this as well. And obviously, as you said, this great master felt this way too, that there's a sensuality. <clears throat> so my teacher, Michaela Boehm, always says that there is no strict dividing line between sexual pleasure and sensual pleasure. And I think this is a very foreign idea to a lot of people because in our culture, we have this very specific relationship to sexuality that seems to almost bracket it into uh, its own domain. And I think there's a reason for that. Obviously, it has a power that's very unique. But really, there is also something about sensuality that can be really just thought of as an intimacy with the senses themselves. And that's the way I think about it. And that's what, you know, uh, it kind of lights my heart up is the intimacy with the senses that is awakening and that is also in lovemaking and that is also in a mountain and that is also, uh, you know, available every single minute. And for me is one of the primary vehicles of, uh, contact between one soul and another is that intimacy with the senses. So when I think of sensuality, I think about it as a, a channel through which contact can be truly made with uh, God or awakening or the self or another or a mountain or anything. And that vehicle, uh, is very important to me. Yeah. So I love it. Uh, I love that quote. And, um, and it's sort of, you know, as someone who traverses the realms of, uh, sex ed, explicit sex ed to, uh, meditation traditions that have been mostly done by celibates, that definition for me is what links them. And what makes it so that I can be in both worlds at the same time and show up as the basically same person, right? Uh, who has the basically same orientation, no matter which one I'm in. The inquiry for me is still exactly the same. Does that make sense? It, it total, totally makes sense. I mean, from, from one perspective, like the only... The only contact with anything we have is through the senses. So the more intimate we are with that, whether it's a person, a rock, a mountain, uh, whatever, good food, it's, it's, it's all the same from, from one perspective. Uh, so that, yeah, that, that, mm. that totally makes sense. Um, and it sounds like your, your, your instruction and your teaching and your practice have been mostly on the, on the non-celibate, non-renunciate side. Uh, but with the study you're doing now currently and I, I don't know, in your practice background as well. Um, yeah, maybe you could say a little bit about uh, the apparent conflict between sensuality and uh, this kind of, this, mm, it's usually conceived of as like a, non, a non-sexual, a non-craving intimacy. Uh, mm-hmm. But maybe you could say something about how that paradox is resolved. You know, big, big ask, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I mean, how that paradox is resolved is likely above my pay grade, but I can definitely <laughs> offer some thoughts. <laughs> um, and, you know, all I can say is this is sort of my current thoughts on the topic, and who knows what I'll think in a few years or uh, 
you know, once I'm more awakened, what I'll think, uh, or once I'm more educated, what I'll think. Uh, so I can only really say what I think right now. But, uh... <clears throat> well, first of all, I want to sort of acknowledge that there is, uh, So as being someone who's kind of immersed in the worlds of sex and the worlds of spirituality, I do see how sensual pleasures of all varieties, not just sex, but sex is very pleasurable, can, can cause intense uh, craving and aversion. I mean, to put it simply, right? So, uh, if you think about just the emotions that can occur as a result of sexuality, you get everything from, uh, overwhelming, overwhelming longing and lust to, uh, humiliation, disgust, uh, shame, violation, right? So it's a wide spectrum and the ends of that spectrum go farther than a lot of things. And they touch places in us that have both the power to intensely affect us for good and be a vehicle to transport us to realms within ourselves and possibilities of connection that would be very hard to access any other way. And so they have a great power in, um, you know, one of the sort of interpretations of the word yoga, and I'm, I'm not a, a scholar of uh, these terms, but one of them that I've heard is that, uh, it's, it can mean to yoke, uh, and that that definition came from the Indo-Aryan people and their, uh, riding of horses and that they were transporting themselves and yoking their means of transport. And so we can think of yoga as inner transport. And so sexual yoga and the way sex can be used is a very powerful form of transport. And when you have a powerful thing, it can go in massively positive and massively negative directions. And so I think the contradiction, the seeming contradiction comes from the fact that, uh, those things can be distracting and destabilizing and, uh, cause a lot of harm and be very powerful in ways that are take us away from intimacy and love and our ethics and our values and all of those things, just as much as they can be powerful things that take us towards them. And so, you know, I, I'm not so much in the camp of the sex is inherently positive. I think it's just powerful and can be many things. Uh, and so I think that, you know, is the basic answer as from, from where I stand is like, uh, it's the same really with many other things like money and, um, power in all of its forms, you know, uh, even beauty, even, uh, good, really wonderful things that inspiration, you know, powerful spiritual teachers who have the ability to transport their students from location to location, you know, anything that has that kind of transformative power is, is always loaded with which direction will you do the transportation in? Uh, so I think that's the kind of contradiction and how to tie them together, I suppose, as the next question, uh, again, a little above my pay grade, but from what I can tell, I think there's a lot of ways, frankly. Um, I just actually, so I had, uh, I just interviewed Lee Brasington for my podcast and he told me this wonderful story, which is, I'm going to repeat it here because it was so good and I won't, you know, do the whole hour and a half version, but it's about a, um, a tantric, uh, Buddhist tantric woman who sort of seduces a king into tantric practice and education and then gets enlightened like that, 
And I think uh, the reason why that's a legend is because, well, the power of seduction and transportation when it's used for good is very powerful. Um, but sort of another link for me uh, is kind of what we were talking about with the red thread, where Actually, I'm trying to kind of articulate what I'm saying so I say it correctly. One of the things Lee said to me at the end of that is about how sometimes, and I'm paraphrasing here, so he, you know, forgive me, Lee, if I paraphrase wrong, but sometimes it's not about getting rid of our conceptions, but rather about looking at them into them and through them so that we say, yes, this, and that we were, you know, as things appear to us, we accept them as they appear and all of the conception and objectification that happens with uh, ordinary 3D perception oftentimes. And then we invite more. And I suppose that's, you know, I suppose that's my orientation if you want to know the truth. Uh, okay sexuality as people experience it and all of the nitty gritty and all of the stuff that people have going on there. So it's for me, instead of kind of shying away from that and looking away from it or trying to deconstruct it or get rid of it, I'm more interested in uh, embracing it and asking what else there is and looking deeper into that and looking also deeper into spirituality to see well, what's beneath this whole celibacy thing? What's beneath this whole oversexed uh, media situation here, right? If we just keep looking and keep looking and keep looking and keep being with things, then what, uh, what, then what appears? And uh, what I think appears is just some very basic stuff, like longing to connect and wanting to see and be seen and wanting to share the many parts of ourselves freely with uh, ourselves and another. And I think really uh, the longing for that kind of intimacy is at the root of both things. For me, the way I see it, and you know, as I said, I'm just at this point in the journey, so this could definitely change, but... Um, I often think uh, both sexuality and spirituality really are, are essentially a means of transporting ourselves to, way, to places we want to go and things we want to feel. And that those places we want to go in ourselves and in the world and with others are often motivated by just the very same basic human motivations like escape pain alleviate suffering, find intimacy, contact something real, and, uh, yeah. Going, going on from that, like, this is, this is all very interesting and rich territory for me, me personally, having had a kind of celibate renunciate period, though I never fully ordained, um, and now mm. I'm married and uh, just so much, so many points of connection in in my own personal history, uh, and, and, and practice, uh, and mm. the contrast between, well, sexuality, you know, maybe it's not inherently harmful, but it's so complicated and messy. It's really just best mm -hmm. to kind of discard it, uh, which mm -hmm. I was on, I was on board with for a while. <laughs> um, not so much anymore. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad decision. I mean, I really don't have any particular ideas to be frank about what should be done for each individual about that. So I totally think that's a, the right choice for some people. Absolutely. And as you've, as you've said, the like motivations behind, behind sexuality or, you know, and the, the way I kind of see it now, all of these, you know, harmful behaviors around, around sex, around, you know, craving for food or money or power or fame, mm -hmm they're all kind of distorted reflections of actually quite wholesome needs around nurturing and connection that through conditioning have been just yeah. covered over and distorted. 
Uh, and it's tragic. Um, just really, really tragic. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I, t- I tend to think of it along the same lines that there's, there's some, I think needs are complex and cravings are complex, right? And, uh, so, you know, with the looking deeper theme, uh, rather than value judgments, I suppose, uh, what is motivating these behaviors? I totally agree that often it's some kind of deep seated longing and need that has been, uh, that someone has kind of figured out that, okay, well, if I get this thing over here, it seems to provide a kind of proxy for filling a need I have. And, you know, what that is for each person is very complex and uh, interesting to me and how we configure our lives to create feeling states that are important to us and what those are for each individual and those sort of unique configurations that people figure out how to, how to kind of collage together to create a self and create a life that feels okay and feels worthwhile and makes meaning for them and makes, uh, enough positive affect to get through the day. You know, I think that's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's very, it's how we weave together all of those things and, create those states for ourselves is sort of always, I think, more complex than it appears initially to an outside eye. Complex, but also, but also simple. I've been yeah. hanging around in the, the, I don't know, the memeplex of, uh, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, qualia computing or, uh, yeah, yeah. the symmetry theory of valence. Uh, uh-huh. I've been talking with those folks recently yeah. and, uh, yeah, I mean, when you, when you really look at it and then it meshes well with, you know, early Buddhist and other, other contemplative systems, the, the, the poor human organism is, is really just pursuing, uh, positive valence. And if it's confused or, you know, if you want to use the traditional, perhaps a little derogatory term diluted, um, then it's going to pursue it in unhealthy ways, uh, and cause suffering, actually cause more, uh, suffering for itself and, and others around it. And it's the same with sex. It's the same with, uh, just any, any problem area of human life. Uh, and one solution throughout the ages has been, okay, just completely disconnect from the world of the senses, find the original completeness, wholeness, and connection in oneself, just in one's perception, and good, you're done. You can just, you know, help other people reach the same thing. Uh, but there's this alternative, and I think historically later development, you know, you probably know more about this than me about the development of Tantra, but this, this later, you know, in, the, in Buddhism, it would be like a later turning of the wheel, uh, of using, as you said, uh, using sex, using desire actually as a vehicle to return to the connection that's always already there. Um, but using uh, expedient means. Yeah. I mean, the history of Tantra is very interesting and something I've been studying lately. And I think the origins of it are definitely fascinating. And of course they occurred, uh, really the first evidence we have of them is in the first millennia. And of course, uh, who knows what was happening before, uh, writing, you know? Uh, so it's hard to really trace and track because it, what happens really, at least as far as I know, and I'm not a religious scholar, but this is my understanding is that, uh, the origins of it kind of fade into obscurity in a certain sense. So we know that, uh, well, it's sort of agreed upon academically for the most part that, Hindu, uh, sex were the first tantrics and that Buddhists kind of, uh, adopted a lot of the practices that, uh, Shaivist and Shakta, uh, Hindu, uh, yogis were practicing. And, but those sex were it really, it's not one stream. It's kind of mini streams. And when we think about the way society was structured back then, we didn't have this sort of centralized, uh, spread of ideas. We had, you know, different people living in different villages and areas and developing and innovating their own practices. And, um, there's also what scholars call, uh, the socio-religious substrate 
pre-Vedic socio-religious substrate, which is a very vague term, but it sort of means like everything besides the stuff that was written down that we kind of don't know what was going on. And <laughs> Nice filler you know, phrase there, yeah. Right, well, I mean, I'm not trying to denigrate scholars, because I love the tantric scholars. I don't know them personally, but I love them from afar, because I really, I just love them. I mean, their work is really wonderful. Um, uh, but so there's this idea that there was... Uh, a lot of people doing spiritual practice in sort of what you could think of as sort of indigenous people, right? And were there people who were using their relationship to the body and the earth and sexuality and sensuality as a means of communion with the divine? I think there's a certainly an argument for yes. And I think there's certainly an argument for that a lot of these people were actually women and that there were female tantrics uh, doing their own thing that maybe got their practices from just the way things may, might have been done pre-Vedic, uh, you know, society uh, in the Indus Valley civilization uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, where did this stuff come from? Was it uh, advent by a bunch of male monastics? Was it maybe more complicated? It's an interesting question. I don't have the answer. Um, but, um, you know, so, okay. For embodied sexual practices with communion with bodies and nature, I wouldn't look to celibate male monastics as the <laughs> genesis, if I'm honest. <laughs> so Shaman but, uh... Hatley, well, you probably can't read this. Shaman Hatley, University of Massachusetts, Sisters and Consorts, Adepts and Goddesses, Representations of Women, uh, in the Brahma Yamala. So, I mean, he goes through, and there's certainly evidence that there were female, all female tantric lineages of women living off in, uh, nature, and the male, uh, tantrics were sort of seeking them out to try to get practices and initiations. That's at least what the men were writing down. Do we have evidence that, you know, they also wrote down that they could create lightning from mantras. So, when you look at this stuff, it's a little bit sort of, magic and the relationship to magic and to uh spells and and that is really actually quite a big part of tantra and so were there really these women were they you know magical sort of dakini yogini type figures that weren't real women i mean who knows but they did write that all of these female tantrics were off doing their own thing and i tend to sort of go with that because it's it just feels right. And of course, that's really not a good uh, way of assessing information. <laughs> Until the evidence but, um, comes in, that's a, that's a great story. So, <laughs> I mean, I think, as I said, it's very foggy. The origins of Tantra are very foggy and very hard to really track down. But um, I at least think that's, you know, an interesting interpretation to throw into the mix, along with the idea that these were innovations by male monastics. I think, you know, it's at least worthwhile thinking about the many sources of where where did these innovations really come from? Uh, scholarship is undecided, but yeah, there's... scholarship is undecided, but there's, but there's many different theories that I think are interesting to, to contemplate. Excellent. And I, I hope maybe I'll, I'll put in the show notes. Maybe, maybe you can get some, some book recommendations. Uh, and I'll, I'll put those in. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not, there's not a ton of really good books about the, that I've found about the origins, I, but uh, Alexis Sanderson is a great scholar. I think he gives really, really good comprehensive uh, work, and Shaman Hatley, and um, Andre Padu, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of really great scholars that are kind of examining these, these very nerdy uh, aspects of, of practice that I'm uh, very fascinated by. Right. Maybe, maybe bringing it from the historical to the, to the modern, uh, context, you know, for people living their lives, they're busy. Most of the people listening to this probably are not, you know, living monastically. What, uh, you're, you're a sex educator and you're, uh, you know, learning, uh, about scholarship around, around Tantra. It's, it, I mean, it seems from everything we've, we've talked about already, this seems actually quite relevant to most people's lives who are disconnected, um, I mean, hopefully you're not listening, listening to this. Hopefully you're not disconnected. You have, you know, all the connection that you could dream of, but, um, between, between sex and spiritual practice, uh, like what, what are, what are resources? What are practical ways for people to engage 
in these themes to find communion, to find uh, however they frame mm-hmm. it to themselves, the, the divine God uh, awakening through their engagement with the senses. I think for most people, I know, I know, you know, for me in the past, it, it has, it has, it's been the case that I have, there's like a tortured relationship with sensuality, with, mm-hmm. with, with, with sex, uh, that doesn't actually feel uh, wholesome or nourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe you could say a little bit about what, what the movement from where most people may be mm-hmm. to a more, uh, I hesitate to use the word enlightened experience of sensuality and sexuality. Well, I mean, my first recommendation is look up my teacher, Michaela Boehm and Steve James guru Viking is also another great teacher in these realms. And, uh, as someone who's experienced many teachers and many, uh, people working in those realms, I really trust them deeply. And I think they're, uh, very, very, not only, well-intentioned, but just, uh, good at teaching. You know, there's a skill of teaching that's sort of, uh, the transmission aspect or the sort of personality aspect and the intentions and the integrity. And then there's the part where you just give good instructions. You know how to, if you're a painting teacher, you know how to teach people all the brushstrokes and how to actually get them to really go through and learn the basic skills that they would need to make a painting. So I think Michaela and Steve are very good at that. And, um, and let's see. I mean, you feel free to plug yourself here. I know you have like, uh, courses oh no, your... I mean, you know, I, I sort of, I, I like plugging my teachers better than I like plugging myself. Um, as for how to transition from that kind of like tortured longing to a more happy place, I think, you know, that's usually, a process, I, I would say, um, for most people and consists of so many steps to untangling that in, uh, one's psyche and, uh, life and body and so on, you know, um, However, I think that the message we're getting is is loud and clear. There's there's hope, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, one hundred percent. And these are skills I mean, I, that one can learn yeah, from yeah, yeah, yeah. Qualified qualified teachers. Yes, I think so. One of the sort of tragedies of the world right now, I think, in my eyes, is that I do think that having a good relationship to one's body and not just working out or you know taking care of yourself so that you maintain your health, but understanding how to be in your body in a way that feels good and a way that actually uh sustainably relates you to your senses in sex and otherwise is just not taught so it's sort of like if you gave someone zero nutrition advice and zero exercise advice and then you throw them into a world of mcdonald's and don't ever expose them to an outside world and and then they get obese and then people feel ashamed and it's like well how in god's name was anyone supposed to know how to do otherwise i mean and that's sort of the world we have around sex it's like okay we're not going to teach you anything about either the brass tacks of how to actually do this thing nor how to relate to it psycho-emotionally nor how to even really relate to your own body or really another person. And then we're going to throw around a bunch of dating apps and porn and vibrators and just throw them and then go. I mean, and so of course people are like lost and confused. I mean, it's really no one's fault. I just think we don't give any kind of good practical sex education, embodiment education, or intimacy education, which I think are three different things, really. Um, and none of them is covered. And so people come out the other end. And really what then happens is people start judging themselves. And, you know, Michaela said this to someone in a workshop once, that it's, okay, so at first you're trying to do embodiment or trying to do intimacy or trying to get into your senses and you just can't even walk up a hill like you're that out of shape. But if it was exercise, we wouldn't think, well, oh, I something's deeply wrong with me. You know, I'm broken inside. No, you just think, well, I just need to work out more, right? So it's the same with this stuff. 
unless we set aside some time in our days, in our lives, to practice the simple act of figuring out what we feel in our body, how our body moves and reacts to those sensations, how to feel another person's body through our body, as in what state are they in, what are they feeling sensually and emotionally, which, you know, there's not a line between those things. And then what's it like when my sensations and your sensations start bouncing off of each other and interacting? And how do I be present or navigate or skillfully work with that? Uh, unless we set aside some time to figure that out, uh, we probably won't. And that's not anyone's fault. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, it's another thing that really motivates my life, honestly, is that I see the suffering that that lack of education causes and I just think it's so unnecessary. Uh, and so sad really that we don't have more of an emphasis on that. I mean, we teach people geometry and physics and all of these abstract conceptualizations and we just fill people's heads with all this super cool knowledge, but where's the body and all that? And why don't we have some kind of basic education built in about, uh, what happens when I'm really emotional and another person is really emotional and then what do we do? And then we start getting emotional together. Like, doesn't that seem like something we should be learning in seventh grade? I mean, it just feels kind of crazy. It's, it's, you know, it's like there are these areas of human competency, which in like the world at large and society, just they, they aren't valued either monetarily or within like pedagogical institutions. Like imagine like a university level or, you know, we should get it in earlier, but imagine a university level course, sex and intimacy and, you know, and, and mindfulness, like, you know, what, like, like this is, this is such an area of, of, of pain, but also incredible potential for people. And it's there, there just aren't many accessible resources so that that's kind of the direction you want to take, uh, for yourself or at least part of it. I mean, that, that makes me a, a little more helpful for the future. I know, I know I could have used the help. <laughs> Yeah. I wish there was a university course. I wish there was a middle school course. I wish there was, you know, uh, course. I wish these were things that people knew that we could teach to our five-year-olds, not about sex, but about the body and how we relate to the bodies. I mean, it starts so young and, uh, and yeah, I just think, um, those are learnable skills and that a lot of them relates to, Really, I think a lot of it relates to approaching it that way. As a skills development issue. Yeah, as a skills development issue. And that's what's, I think that mentality is really almost a bigger issue for most people than it would be to then figure out what to do if they would approach it from a skill acquisition place, right? So when most people can't figure out what to do uh, in basic sex, what they think is like, Oh, uh, because this is supposed to be natural and I'm supposed to just know how to do this. Cause I guess this is a thing that animals do. So therefore I should know how to do it, which is kind of the way we configure sex. Uh, well, okay. It must be broken if that's not me and I need to address the brokenness. In fact, that doesn't really go anywhere a lot of times cause there is actually mostly nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. What's mostly wrong is just that, okay, well, yeah, I mean, you could cook, uh, you could eat raw chicken for the rest of your life and satisfy your hunger. But if you want to cook a good meal, you probably need to take a cooking class. And you don't need to just go into the kitchen alone and try to go in there and figure out how to work this burner and what do I do with this chicken. And I mean, you would just make so many mistakes, right? <laughs> or like riding a bike. Okay, go by yourself into a place with a bike. No one can tell you how to do this. You have to just, if at the most, you can maybe read a book which shows you a bike. But no one's going to hold you up and, like, help you figure out how to get going on it. You won't see anyone else riding a bike. And if you do, it's someone riding some sort of high-powered motorcycle, (laughs) like in porn, right? Something totally unrealistic. And then you're just trying to figure out how to get going on this little bicycle. I mean, most people would just fall over, give up, and feel terrible about themselves, which is basically the state of affairs. And so, and then we have all this stuff around it, like the mini emotions that then get built up when you stay alone and don't talk about something and it gets even more weird and mysterious and convoluted and crazy and scary and all of these things. So what is my message here? Just, uh, 
yeah, I wish there was just, I wish there was more people breaking this stuff down in just a very matter of fact way that's not loaded with their own stuff and their own agendas. Well, of course I have mine. I've stated them. So everyone has their agenda, but you know, I just think sort of matter of fact instructions in all of these realms is uh, the important part. And it starts with the thing we started this whole podcast out with, which is just uh, knowing how your own five senses are communicating to you. That fundamental thing is just so is the basic skill set underlying every single thing. And uh, it's funny how once people start to feel that a lot of the other natural stuff starts to kind of work itself out because your body knows what another body is feeling naturally. That's the way we're wired neurologically. So once you start, the more you feel yourself, the more you can feel someone else. And the more you practice feeling that, the more you start to experiment with how to navigate that in ways that create positive experiences for everyone. Um, so intimacy with the five senses. Yeah, I think it's very important and um, a big passion of mine. Right. So sex, spirituality, not that different in the end. And they're all, it's all, it's all skills based. It's, it's learnable. It's teachable. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's cause for despair for lots of reasons, but you know, these aren't, these aren't, these aren't one of some of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Michaela always says, and I, I'm always quoting her cause she's my teacher. So, you know, that's what one does, but she always says that love is actually harder to figure out than sex. And I think that's probably the yeah. case that, you know, really, uh, as far as skills acquisition and as far as navigating the complexities of what happens between two people, uh, love is, love is really complicated. So I think sex is actually a lower hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have to figure out how to, uh, how to love ourselves in another human being when so much of life is so painful. So, you know, that's what's, that's kind of what, uh, is maybe harder, but I will say, I think that sensually connection, sensual connection can kind of help love too. That's, that's really my motivation for, for exploring it. And in truth is I think it's a uh, good, it's a good way of, it's a good way of getting people closer to each other that is, that can kind of draw people into wanting to love each other. And love is kind of the ultimate thing in my view. So you've just, you've revealed your true motivations. You like the tantric <laughs> adept who seduced the king. You're drawing people in with sex, but what you actually want is just uh universal love and, you know, universal. Oh fellowship. God, it's so true. It's so true. It's so true. I don't, I'm, I wouldn't, I don't know. Am I drawing people in with sex? I don't think so. I think it's a vehicle that I think is a good way in for everyone. For me, for for people I help, or for for anyone that wants to love someone else, but uh, but yeah, that is really what I care about is love. It's the love. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, I was actually on retreat with Lee not too long ago. Um, <gasps> I love and him. Great teacher, <laughs> wonderful human being, very kind. Oh my god. And uh, he concluded, as as I'll try to conclude the podcast with. Uh, uh, you know, poor paraphrase, uh, but uh, it's the funny thing about love. Uh, the more you give, uh, the more there is. Mm -hmm. And uh, not actually the end. Please tell people where they can find you. Oh, ChelseaFasano.com. Uh, I think that's my main place to be found. I can also regularly be found on the Guru Viking podcast talking with Shinzen and Jay and uh being the sort of voice of a lot of these things in the conversation about connection embodiment pleasure and uh and the deep possibilities of intimacy with self and other and uh i love that conversation so i think that's another good way to learn more uh yeah excellent uh and excellent podcast series highly recommended one of my favorite things on the internet and uh as well, your own podcast, uh, Orthogonal. Um, people can find that on your website. Thank I suppose you. there's links there. Yeah, it's on my website. It's on um, Spotify, I think. 
forgetting the name of the website. Spotify, yeah, Spotify. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's some really cool people on there. Uh, neuroscientists, uh, of sexuality, some people who teach about sexual skill acquisition, um, some, uh, some psychedelic researchers, some neuroscientists, some spiritual teachers. It's kind of the, the Chelsea, the weird Chelsea mix of stuff that I like, and I sort of have no shame about just putting it all on one podcast. So you, if you don't like one, you just have to kind of skip around. If it's too neuroscience heavy, you know, find the next one and go to your area of interest. But I think there's a lot of really cool people on there to listen to talk about these things in a much more eloquent way than I can. Well, thanks so much, Chelsea. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was delightful. All right. Thanks so much. Bye.